what I don't think you need to do is have listened to Charles Manson's folk album he recorded, which I also <laughs> did that in undergrad, just because I was curious what a future serial killer sounded like recording an album. Yeah. The answer's fine. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Spoiler Warning Podcast. This is review number 567 with a review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm Christopher Schnazy. And I'm Stephen Miller. And if you're joining us for the first time, the Spoiler Warning Podcast is a weekly film review program. Each week on the show, we're going to dive in, debate, discuss, and argue over the latest film releases coming to a theater near you. Um, this week, we are here to tackle the latest film from Quentin Tarantino. Um, this is a film that Steven saw at Cannes. Um, I saw just this past weekend, <laughs> and or last night, actually. Yesterday. No, Saturday. I saw it Saturday. Mm. Anyways, unimportant. We're here to talk about this film. Um, before we get started, um, this film is a fun little film from Quentin Tarantino um, that involves some people who existed in real life. Um, so I thought maybe we could start this episode by just talking a little bit about what knowledge we had of Sharon Tate and Charlie Manson and sort of the Sharon Tate murder and just any previous knowledge we had before walking to this film. Right. Um, where were you? Yeah. Uh, so I, I would say I was at the casual but unresearched level of knowledge. Like, and, and maybe I should say casual if I had been around back then, because I feel like I, I absorbed from my parents enough of the info. Like, like let's see, I knew about the Charles Manson family. I knew that he had kind of a, a cohort of young women who followed him, who he talked into committing heinous murders, um, using a ton of justifications, including a race war and a bizarre misreading of the Beatles song Helter Skelter. Um, I knew also that Sharon Tate had been the wife of Roman Polanski and was pregnant with uh, their unborn child, and she was murdered by them in his home, and that that led to some of the downward spiral that he used to justify some of the terrible things he did in the future, including raping a 13-year-old girl that caused him to leave the country and then continue to win Academy Awards for, for quite a while <laughs> uh, in a very strange problematic Woody Allen sort of way. Yeah. Um, yeah, th th those were the basics. Like, I, I didn't know how it was done. I knew I knew there was a murder. I knew that it took place in their, like, fancy house and that it seemed completely random and that it kind of caused the era to change. And suddenly people, people saw Charles Manson and company as, like, harbinger of the scary new future and like society that you couldn't control anymore and it kind of combined with the vietnam war and all these other things to make people feel like life wasn't as happy and polished as it felt before so that that, that was about it I, I didn't know names or details really but i knew like the sketch of what happened yeah so in the days leading up to going to see this film I knew very little at all about the sort of that case or anything surrounding it really um i knew about the existence of Charles Manson um, and the Manson family, but I like, it was before my time, surprisingly. <laughs> and I just have never cared enough to go back. Like I, I absorbed the existence through popular culture, but I've never really watched anything really about it or read anything about it. Um, but I did hear David Ehrlich talking on the Fighting in the War Room podcast um, about the film coming out of Cannes and he had mentioned that it may be helpful to have at least a passing knowledge of the events of the case before yep. going in to see the film. Um, so I hopped on uh, Wikipedia like literally 10 minutes before going to see the film <laughs> and um, and then just kind of read briefly over who everybody was and what happened just so I had a knowledge of who Sharon Tate was and just that sort of stuff. Yep. Um, I guess... Before we get into the full review, do you think that knowledge is helpful? Yes, definitely. I, I definitely think that knowledge helps a lot with the tone that Tarantino is setting. Yeah. It, it's kind of like, it, it's really hard to talk about without going into spoilers, but it, it, I think it sets a sort of ticking time bomb in the movie that maybe wouldn't be implicit if you didn't know the details of it going yeah, in. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I think so. What I don't think you need to do is have listened to Charles Manson's folk album he recorded, which I also <laughs> did that in undergrad, just because I was curious what a future serial killer sounded like recording an album. Yeah. The answer's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and it hasn't affected you at all. Mm-mm. That you know of. No. But then again, the race war hasn't started yet. So. Nope, not yet. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so I, I would agree. I, I, I was I was I was happy that um, I had looked up that information. Um, we will talk about that probably in greater length in the spoiler segment at the end of this episode. Um, but for now, I think it's probably time just to get into our review. So we're going to take a listen to the trailer for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and then we're going to come back and give you guys that review. I'm Rick Dalton. It's my pleasure, Mr. Schwartz. Call me Miles, then. Put it there. That's your son? No, that's my stunt double, Cliff Booth. Last night, we watched a Rick Dalton double feature. <laughs> All the shooting. <laughs> I love that stuff, you know, the killing. A lot of killing. Anybody order fried sauerkraut? old buddy and well, has been here I am flat on my ass who, who I got living next door to me I'm Sharon Tate I'm in the movie you're in this that's me I play Miss Carlson the klutz Charlie's gonna dig you and that gospel group Telling you and me is the salvation show In this town, I can all change like that Hey, you're Rick Dalton don't you forget it. All right. So that was the trailer for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, it is a story of a sort of action actor guy who um, has a long career time with a friend of his who's his a stunt double. Yep. And it's sort of about them towards the end of the peak of their career where they're starting to realize that like they're a little bit older um they're maybe not going to get all the perfect roles it's about them sort of trying to stay relevant um meanwhile their next door neighbors are (laughs) roman polanski and sharon tate um and it's sort of just them as they try to keep their career going and their sort of experiences um interacting with you know, some some different people from around uh, the Hollywood and greater L.A. area. Yeah. Stephen Miller, what did you think of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Uh, okay, so two disclaimers. One, I saw this in the middle of Cannes. It had been a crazy, crazy festival. I have not revisited it since. So I'm, I'm really going by, like, two-month-old memory at this point of what happened in the movie. Uh, and second disclaimer, I actually quite... I mostly agree with Tarantino's desire for people to not be spoiled for this. Like he was kind of heavily criticized for going out of his way to beg people not to spoil in a way that seemed a little bit like too much. But I do think the enjoyment of this movie kind of hinges on not knowing not only what will happen, but not knowing exactly how the tone unfolds. So I'm going to be a little cagey in the non-spoiler section and then I'll dive into more specific scenes after. So I'm, I'm mostly going to stick with stuff that was in the trailer, I think, when I start out. Um, with that said, I really like this movie. Um, it 
took some time to build, like to grow on me. I think that is like very intentional. And probably most people who are fans of Tarantino who expect a kind of giddy, irreverent, violent, how many shocking things can we throw into one film between X characters? People who were looking for that kind of Tarantino probably didn't quite know how to feel as the movie unrolled, right? This is a much more wistful and I would say like mature version of Tarantino where he's he's looking back at a bygone era of Hollywood, an era that by all accounts he is in love with. You know, he is a famous cinephile. His movies are filled with references to pop culture and films of time past. And he's kind of looking at this era that looked too good to be true through the eyes of a bunch of characters who know that their time is starting to run out in Hollywood. Um, you know, uh, Rick Dalton, Leo DiCaprio, he was a big movie star back in the day, but now he's kind of a faded version of his former glory, and he can feel that, like, the roles are going to keep dwindling and, like, the new culture is going to pass him by. Uh, Brad Pitt as Cliff Booth, his uh, stunt double, has kind of, like, passed that era already where he's already pretty much resigned to hey, life is what it is. Let me just sit back and enjoy the ride and not stress too much. And I think there's, I never thought I would say this about Tarantino, but there's like a really kind of like gentle, like niceness that comes from their relationship in the movie. And I I don't know, there's just a lot of feelings in this film that I am not used to getting from a Tarantino movie yeah. um, in, in a way that I really, really enjoyed. I think... Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate, uh, it's been previously mentioned that like she is not in as much of the movie as some people would have hoped that she was. I feel like the scenes that she does get, she's like such a bright light in the movie. Uh, there's one scene in particular of her watching herself in a theater that is just like total movie-making joy, right? Uh, and a lot of this movie, that joy comes down to the, the same thing that Hail Caesar came down to, which is like someone kind of parodying a time and place, but then also being so in love with the time and place that they're just like thrilled to get to recreate it. And I feel like a lot of this movie hinges on that, that love of what Hollywood probably wasn't, but at least what our story of what Hollywood was back before innocence was lost forever. Yeah. Um, and I think like it has that on the one side and then it has this undercurrent of the ticking time bomb of the Manson family murders and the social upheaval that happens, and then, like, little hints of violence and violent pasts that kind of, like... Like any Tarantino movie, like, there are long moments where you're getting to know characters, and then you're waiting for everything to explode. And I think what's interesting about this movie is he lets the long moments be way longer than usual. Uh, And so what you're left with is this kind of, like, interesting tension where, like, I really liked where it was, and then also I was like, okay, what the fuck is he going to do with this? Yeah. Um, and it's going to be hard to say more about that without going into spoilers, but I do really enjoy what the fuck he did with it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think like everyone is amazing here. I love Leonardo DiCaprio in this movie. Uh, I think Brad Pitt is like probably the best I've ever seen him in terms of actually acting. <laughs> like he always has that <laughs> swagger, but I feel here, I feel like the him playing a middle-aged like stuntman whose time has maybe run its course like that just felt like so meta in terms of like the the softness he kind of brings to the role behind the kind of violent i could totally beat you up if i wanted to attitude um i really love them and margot robbie obviously um i also felt like most of the time with the tarantino movie i feel weird about the way he uses race and stuff to try to like poke you in the eye you know he famously has the n-word a billion times in every movie this time, like, he tones that down. Like, I don't... <laughs> hippie is his word in this film. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, like, like he has hippie, but I feel like there isn't as much stuff with two exceptions, both of which I don't know how I feel about and I, like, really enjoyed at the same time. Uh, one <laughs> is, is in the trailer is the Bruce Lee fight scene. Yeah. Um, I think that is a great scene that is very funny in a way that is not a caricature of who Bruce Lee was. Like, it... It seems like a pretty good homage to him, but I do feel like the way the audience laughs can also be not great, you know, so that's one. And then the other, there's a line, it's the only line in the movie that has, like, really stuck with me. (laughs) Is it alliteration? It's, uh, no, uh, Leo DiCaprio has been, like, 
lamenting that his career is over when he's talking with uh, with Brad Pitt in a diner, and they're in the parking lot, and he bursts into tears, <laughs> and he hugs him, and Brad Pitt, to calm him down, goes, now, now, don't cry in front of Mexicans. <laughs> <laughs> and, and just, I like... The, it like, it means ca- nothing. Yeah, it's it means just nothing. Like a, it's just like the weird, casual, like, yeah. I, I don't know. It, th- there's just something about those characters. Where it, it's like he just has, like, little hints of the, like... I'm going to provoke you style from before. And then yeah. mostly he sands the edges off of it. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I, th- I thought it was a super well-made, well-paced movie. I enjoy that he toned it down for once. I feel like it's really cool to let the other aspects of his filmmaking shine. And yeah, I was, I was a fan. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of love this movie. Um, <laughs> and it's weird too, because it, there's, there's the movie he made. And then there is, the movie that's there and i feel like i shouldn't like this movie it's a like everything i love about it is just kind of knowing what i'm seeing <laughs> and like seeing tarantino reuse people he's used from past films having characters mirror sort of relationships from other films seeing just like the the art of what he's doing and the way he's playing with it and the way he is taking like your ideas of what you're supposed to expect from his films and playing with it. But he's also commentating on like, you know, as we said, this is, these characters are sort of aging out of their profession and Tarantino, like Tarantino is basically retiring after this film. If you don't count Star Trek. Um, I mean, sure. He might make another film, but like in theory, he's at the end of his sort of like main career right now. He is sort of aging out. If you talk to certain people on the internet his style and tone and feelings towards people in the world, maybe this is not the time for him to be making his type of movies anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think that, like, there's no way he's not aware of that. And he's sort of building a film about people who are maybe extending beyond where they need to be um, in life and in their career. And he's, like, making this incredibly compelling film that's sort of set once upon a time in Hollywood, but it's really just about the relationships between these characters and how they're experiencing life. And like you, you talked about like sort of the relationship between uh, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. And it could have been like a star is born sort of thing where one guy is tanking his career and the other guy is like, I can't let you drag me through all this shit. But it's really about this camaraderie between these two people who have spent a lifetime being just together all the time. And they have this shared experience with everything and they're sort of just inseparable and they have sort of this like just this lifelong forged bond that is just like permeated through every ounce of their uh, their ability and there's not a rivalry between them there's not uh any resentment or anything like even even scenes where like uh leonardo dicaprio is taking a job and he can't let uh cliff be his stunt stunt double it's kind of like yeah well i know how it goes it's not Mm -hmm. it's not it's not like, oh, I can't believe you left me behind. And it's not a rivalry. It's just them being there for each other. And, and like, that's really compelling. And just, I don't know, the moment-to-moment beats of this film are, there's just constant, like, smiles or enjoyment or um, really fun experience of just sitting through and watching it. And then the other thing he does, as you said, like, there are multiple ticking time bombs in this film, scenes that just build dread incredibly well and this is like a three hour long movie i don't remember the exact runtime but my showing definitely was like eleven fifty start time and when i got out it was after three so it's, yep. it's definitely close to three hours long and it it never felt long but there were scenes that extended the dread so long that you're just like sweating and you're anxious and you're just waiting for things to play out and it just it has a just a beautiful way of of kind of just enjoying this ride. And then you have the Margot Robbie thing. And as you said, like, she's not in as much of this film as some people would want. But it, when she's there, she is juxtaposing these people at the end of their career with this person who is, by all accounts, at the beginning, yep. ready to just burst out and take off. And, like, she is not... She has not been there long enough to be instantly recognizable on the street. Um, People she encounters don't know who the hell she is. But she gets to experience freshly how people perceive her as a person, as a character. And it's like that just cutting back and forth between those two things um, just 
kind of gives you like a joy. Um, you see these people who love what they did. Now they can't do it anymore. You see these people who are try like are starting to love what they're doing and then dreaming of where they're going to go. And it's kind of just a, a nice symbiotic balance, much like the symbiotic balance you have with the relationship between <laughs> those two guys. And I, yeah. I don't know, he's, he's doing something really interesting in this film. Um, and I just ate up every second of it. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you liked it. I honestly thought you could easily go either way with this movie because it is definitely the kind of movie that is it is not plot plotty really. Like yeah. like it's a movie that loves to just coast with its characters for a while and like leisurely like let the plot come when it has to come. Yeah, and I, and I think that that's that's what I was kind of saying that like there is a part of me that should dislike this film. There are characters that exist just as sort of place setting, right? They're they're not technically integral to the story, um, but they do add to the overall thing of what you're trying to watch. And I think that so much of this film on paper where I can't look at it as a whole, I would be like, wh- like why is he making this film? Mm-hmm. But consuming it all at once, it's like... Yeah, I I know why he wanted to make this yeah. film. Like it's just it's just really interesting, and and there's great moments that, um, that like within the content, like the things that you see in the trailer. Like there's that scene in the trailer where the little girl says like that was the best yep. acting I've ever seen in my life. In the trailer, it's funny line. In the movie, I teared up. Exactly. Like, it, yeah. it, like I was so one hundred percent there, given the context of those scenes and stuff like that. And it was like he is an expert at building dread, building emotion, making you care about characters, throwing things on their head, playing with your expectations. Like it, it just, it is an expertly crafted story um, or film that happens to also have all these sort of like what feels like inside sort of not jokes, but just people existing. They're like, they're casting is like, yeah, that's fucking genius. Yep. <laughs> and it's like, it, it feels like a film for people that want to see this film, which is like a you know snake eating its tail sort of situation, and I just I, I love it for what it did. <laughs> Definitely, and and so you talk about building dread, and I think one thing, like all of Tarantino's movies, he kind of he peels back the curtain a little, like he shows you the craft, and then he makes the craft work anyway. You know, like Pulp Fiction opens with a def- definition of what pulp is, and like all all these movies have like little things where you're like, God damn it, I know what you're doing. And I love it anyway. Um, In this movie, he really peels back the curtain even more, I think, because some of those scenes that build intensity, one of them is the the scene you mentioned where Rick Dalton is uh, in doing his TV show, uh, the big villain moment in his show where the little girl is also present. And we watch like what feels like a very well-crafted movie or TV show of the time where he's a villain and he's getting into it. And then the camera calls cut, 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 and it peels back and he's like forgetting his lines and he's having all these, you know, all these things that break him out of it. And then he pulls you right back in again and again and again. Yeah. And like, I feel like I could live in that scene for so long with him just toying with me and it, it still works in the end. Like, like he can't resist making something that gets you, even when he is letting you in on the joke every step of the way. Yeah. And and I feel like that's just so. Because I also I felt emotional when the little girl praises you know Leo, Leo's acting. Yeah. Even though it is a very funny scene and it's a very funny line that like we've seen in the trailer already. Yeah. But it it's still in context. It works. Um. I definitely think the meta aspects are also there. Like you mentioned of Tarantino aging and maybe his era being up. I I don't know exactly how much it's going into this, but a, a lot of the characters also have problematic things in in their past. You know, the characters we're supposed to love have have hints of negative things. Um there's also kind of things going on in the context of the movie that like in 2019 Me Too era especially feel strange like like we all know what would happen with Polanski he'd be a you know a, a director that we don't exactly root for anymore uh, Tarantino's own relationship with Harvey Weinstein kind of is similar there and then you have things like like Brad Pitt's character picks up a hitchhiker who is clearly not of age 
and he's like clearly attracted to her and he's like being careful but only kind of careful like I don't, well, the movie well, dances with all these things where you're i'm we'll, kind of like we'll get it into his spoilers yeah. though but there's a very specific reason why he was willing to entertain right her presence but yeah 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 so we're he's dancing with all these things and this is always tarantino right every movie he kind of he has these giddy violent things and he's like i'm gonna trick you into rooting for this and then you're gonna feel dirty for it right like like all of his movies, his characters are like usually terrible, and we wind up being quote on their side anyway. And Glorious Bastards being a clear example, where like by the end, pure mayhem, giddy, violent, bloody, everything is happening, and we are rooting for it. And the movie is kind of like, look at you, you sickos, you want this here, take it, take all of it, you know. Yeah. And and I feel like this movie just like dials it down, but it's still playing with all that, like there are no really good people in the movie. They're just like, they're dialed down a little more than usual. Yeah. And that, that undercurrent of like the violence and like what men are capable of paired with the, but we also feel nostalgic and kind of love them. It, it does make a very interesting movie for this era for a director that is kind of maybe not a hundred percent with the times anymore. Yeah. And I honestly think it would have made a really good last movie. <laughs> like yeah, it, yeah. it would make total sense for this to be the one that he's like, all right, I've made my statement. I'm out. Peace. Yeah. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. Um, going back real fast to that, that scene where he's, um, where he's, where he's working on his, his new project and he's delivering those lines. Uh, one of the things I love about that scene is in, in any normal scene, uh, that was kind of doing the same sort of thing. You would the camera wouldn't cut. You'd be watching the scene play out, and then as soon as they stopped, the camera would pull back, and you'd see all the crew and stuff. This film was doing sort of a hybrid of that, mm-hmm. where it was still cutting. It was cutting as if what you were watching was the final project, yeah, or uh, product. And he would forget a line and need to have the line read to him, but. It didn't stop. You never saw the crew. It was still being treated as if you were watching the final product, but he was messing up and then continuing and starting again. And it did this thing where it was like it constantly kept cutting back and forth where you're like, there should be crew after this cut happened, but he's just playing with like this sort of – it's – it's some form of it's not quite breaking the fourth wall. It's like yeah. rem, it's it's hiding the fourth wall that he is breaking. Yeah, There's but, something but in my memory, it's it. still so stark. It's like the like the aspect ratio changes. There's something about like the look and feel of it. It's just like subtly going like on off on off on off. Yeah, it, yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, it, it was just it, it was like as that was happening, I just had like a really big smile on my face. Like this is fucking rad. <laughs> yeah, it was it was just cool. Yep. <laughs> cool. So, spoilers? Yeah, I feel like I want to go into spoilers. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, before we get to spoilers, we have to do the usual thing. We will go ahead and give everybody our verdicts, and then we'll sign off for those who haven't seen the film yet, um, and then we'll come back for spoilers. So, for now, Stephen Miller, your first official rating, would you give this a must-see, recommend with a caveat, wait for rental, pass with a caveat, or a must-avoid? What would you give it? Uh, I'm going must-see. I mean, I... I sunk one of my 10 days at Cannes basically just begging for a ticket to this movie, and I am not unhappy <laughs> that I did that. <laughs> uh, it felt worth it. And yeah, I just think for a director who is is great, and I don't mean anything bad when I say that he kind of has the same note he hits a lot, this is a movie that I think hits a very different note. And it, it it's cool to see him kind of flex a little bit and try something more subdued and i think he pulls it off yeah uh i'm gonna give this a must see as well um i'll put the tiny little caveat that you should at least look up the sharon tate murders yeah just if you haven't seen it already um it take you 30 seconds just to get as much information as you need to make it worth it. I um, mean, honestly, if you listen to this, you've probably learned enough about the murders, at least. You yeah, know yeah, they yeah. happened. Yeah, yeah. Basically, all you have to know is that <laughs> there was a woman named Sharon Tate who was murdered by uh, some people from the Manson family. Yep. Um, and that's enough to give you what you need for any relevance that that has on this film. Um, but yeah, it, it's definitely a must-see for me. Uh it was a very, very, very fun ride. <laughs> All right. For those of you who aren't going to stick with us through spoilers, Stephen Miller, where can people find you throughout the week? Uh, people can find me at twitter.com slash sdavidmiller or sdavidmiller.com. 
People can film, find me at ChristopherInRealLife.com or Twitter.com slash ChristopherIRL. You can find the podcast over at TheSpoilerWarning.com where you can get a bunch of the back episodes of the show. Um, if you want to subscribe to the show, you can do so in Overcast, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever podcasts are found. If you want to know when the episodes go live, you can follow us at Twitter.com slash SpoilerWarning, Facebook.com slash TheSpoilerWarning, or Instagram.com slash TheSpoilerWarning. If you want to get a hold of us directly, you can send an email to fans at TheSpoilerWarning.com, or you can use the contact form on our site. Music for this episode will come from the soundtrack to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, so hopefully you're enjoying that. Um, we, uh, we're going to have a bonus episode that's going to come out after this does in the feed, where Stephen and I are going to be talking about a combination of Hereditary and Midsummer. Um, yeah, I did it, everybody. I did it. <laughs> Stephen actually uh, put himself through watching both of those uh, at the... Uh, incessant um nagging of me mm-hmm. <laughs> um so given that he took the time to watch both films um even though we didn't find a place to schedule in recording a review before now um we figured we got to make it worth it for steven so yep. <laughs> so we're going to give you that double review um in the feeds after this so stay tuned for that thank you for listening if you are done and checking out now everyone else We are going to take a short break while the music plays, and then we're going to come back and give you a little spoiler territory, so stay tuned. All right, so we are back. This is Spoiler Territory. It's the after part of our review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where we are going to be talking full-blown spoilers for that film. Um, So, do you want to skip right to the good stuff, or do you want to take a step back and kind of cover some other things beforehand? I mean, uh, let's take a step back and cover just a few. There there aren't many, but one that I didn't want to reveal, because I don't remember if it's in the trailer, is when Brad Pitt's character goes to Spawn Ranch, where the Manson family are living uh the basically abandoned western movie lot uh that is now home to all of these hippies mostly girls who have this like undercurrent of menace to them yeah Uh, i did not know that the movie was going to go there like I, i didn't think that i thought rick and cliff were going to be just bystanders who happened to be nearby when the tate murder is yeah. taking place and that there was going to be no intersection beyond that point. And yeah. so when Brad Pitt goes there, I was filled with like a, oh shit, this movie just got like way more interesting. And I, I love the way that those scenes build dread. I think there's just something really eerie about the behavior of all the actresses there. Al- almost all of whom I feel like are like young or former child actresses. Or, like there's something weird going on there where there's like an added element of like, not fetishizing, but there's there's something going on where it's like you feel extra weird about those characters yeah. um, in a way that I really dug. And yeah, I don't really have much more to say except for I really liked that scene. And I like that it it shows what Cliff is capable of. And that's kind of like one of those first hints of like, this is such a gentle seeming guy, but he can be violent as fuck, right? Yeah. Um, and, and I feel like that's really interesting. Well, so so back up twice, I guess. Um, so in the review, you mentioned uh, the sort of gray area of, of Brad Pitt's character, yep. Cliff, picking up one of these girls who's clearly underage. Um, and I mean, this is a girl who he has noticed at several times during the film and sort of had this flirty like hey check out you hot girl and then she's like oh guy you going for a ride um and there's like there's a fun playfulness there that's not a hundred percent creepy right because it seems like it seems tame enough right it's not until they're actually interacting with it because before it's just passing on the road and like waving at a person Mm -hmm. who's like whatever you could it's like it's like the way you would be like oh you funny people being attracted to an old guy whatever i'm not doing a good job mm-hmm. at making this sound gray area um but uh when he finally stops and talks to her and she throws out the fact that she lives at spawn ranch that's when he's like hop in i'll give you a ride i know that place yeah but it's not because he's like yeah i want to entertain the idea of anything that could happen between me and this girl right it's like wait a second there's a bunch of hippies living at spawn ranch a place where i used to work 
where I know the owner who lives there now, there's no way that guy would want a bunch of hippies li- living in his property. Yeah. And it becomes this investigation. And that's where, like, at first you just think, he, oh, he knows it. And, like, you're exactly thinking that it is like, oh, okay, now it's kind of crossing the edge. Tarantino immediately starts to sideline that by making the girl proposition him. Yep. And he's, like, immediately turning it down and sort of, like, in a smart-ass way where it's not even like a, oh, no, I wouldn't want to get caught. It's like a, yeah, you're dumb, girl. Stop. This isn't going to happen. I'm just yeah. giving you a ride. But then you get there, and it immediately is like he knows something's up, and he it's just a slow – It's I don't know how long that scene is, but it feels yeah. like forever in a good way yep. where you're like, Jesus Christ. And then, and then when she finally lets him into the house, you're like, wait – if they killed him, is the body just there? Like, is what is what, is he going to go in the room and then she's going to hit him from behind? Like, what's right. going? Like, it's just this constant, like, oh shit, what is going to happen? What happened to George? What is going on? And like, I I just really loved how that scene just constantly is building dread, building dread, and then the release you get is this ridiculous scene of this old blind man who's sort of like senile, sort of interacting yeah. with like, what? Who are you? I don't really know who you are. A classic Bruce Dern role. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah like so i i i, I really enjoyed the, that scene as well yep. <laughs> yep i liked it um that's right there was one more thing that uh i said two points <laughs> the second point was what did you so at this point you're start like because you mentioned oh shit this is not just going to be a thing that happens next door to these characters we're caring about they are now involved where did you think that was going? Because I sort of started wondering is like, is there this weird rumor in the back end of like in, in Hollywood somewhere about how there is this altercation between the Mansons and some random person and that that instigated this? Like, mm. I, I, I was wondering if he was starting to do a different sort of alternate telling of this history where there was like old Hollywood rumors about some like scuffle that happened and like he was imagining a world in which that scuffle led to these murders. And I was kind of like, whoa, what is happening? Like, I, I, I don't, did you, how far did you deep dive during these scenes or yeah. did you kind of just go like, oh, that was a fun scene and then let it go? I, I didn't deep dive too far. It, it felt more like he was extra Forrest Gumping it where now like the guy, our characters, our leads were going to have context for when the Tate murder happens. Uh, but I didn't really think beyond that of like how much he was teeing up. Yeah, it more just felt like he had found a like a clever way to introduce us more deeply to the Manson family in a way that I wasn't expecting. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. Um. So with the character of Cliff, I also hinted in the non-spoiler section that one negative thing about him. So there are the basic ones of he's like hard to work with because he picks fights and stuff like that. But then there's a much more insidious rumor that he murdered his wife. And I feel like that's, like, mentioned in the movie, and it's never really resolved in any way. It's just, like, hanging over that character's head. And combining that with the times when we see him just, like, not be willing to take shit from anyone and then just completely destroy them, <laughs> it, it it gives this weird thing where, like, on the one hand, I think Brad Pitt is giving, like, a really gentle, kind of lovely portrayal of this guy who's past the peak basically and is just enjoying the ride now but then he just like has this muddy like background of like oh and also he maybe murdered his wife yeah and i i there was just something about that that i really liked it like added like an undercurrent of discomfort with everything that was going on yeah yeah okay I yeah I mean yeah so I you 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 are still saying maybe murdered his wife are you on are you on the on the boat of the literal boat of he didn't murder his wife on purpose <laughs> I don't know I have no idea I, I, I think he probably murdered his he probably at least like <laughs> had a violent reaction to something that ended with his wife being dead yeah I mean like the only so, I mean, we're in spoilers now, so it doesn't matter. But for the context of anybody who happens to be listening for some reason who hasn't seen the film, he is on some sort of vacation trip with his wife, who is, we'll just say, not the most exciting woman to be around. <laughs> she was complaining a lot, yelling at him, calling him names, and he was prepping a spear gun <laughs> to go diving in the water. Yeah. And the last shot is him just sitting with the spear gun in his lap. And she walks directly in front of the spear gun while yelling and berating him. And then it cuts. And that's all we see. And I feel that, like, the way 
the audience is reacting, which is entirely Quentin Tarantino's doing, and he knows exactly the way people are reacting, there is no expectation that that gun did not go off. Sure. And the only thing that would make it an accident is if she, like, threw her beer at him and, like, the impact from the beer made him accidentally squeeze the trigger, right? Mm. It's like, that's clearly like a, you know what? I don't need this. <laughs> and then, boom, she's dead. Yeah, it's heavily hinted. And it's definitely one of those things where, like, why am I then still totally capable of empathizing with this character a minute later, you know? And and that's one of the Tarantino magic of, like, I'm going to make you live with lowlifes, you know? Yeah. And you are going to feel what they feel. Um, yeah. So anyway. Well, but but he's also, yeah, so, so what, what he's doing, I think, maybe, is throughout the entire film... Brad Pitt is, he's a little cocky, but he is also a very stand-up guy who has a lot of character, who is the rock of all of the lives of the people that he experiences. Mm -hmm. He takes care of the people that he knows, and he watches out for people, and he just tries to be a really good guy in general, um, helping out any way he can, and he's just just an all-around good person. Like, he's one of the best... Um, and by best, he's one of the most upstanding characters in the film. Yeah. But he's given a backstory where he most definitely murdered his wife. Yeah. And it's sort of like, it's it's sort of like, <laughs> it's that, that dichotomy of like, obviously he's evil, but obviously he's not. He's a great person who happens to have a dark past. And it's like, is he commenting on whether uh, a little stain on uh, your past should ruin your... Current and future, I, I don't know. There, there's he's at least playing with some interesting things there. Yeah, is is his wife Uma Thurman? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Anyway, um, okay, so on to the main the main event. Um, yeah. So, oh, one, one, one small thing before the main event. Um, I, I, I so in the, in the scene with the little girl. Uh, she's reading, or she's reading a thing. She asks him what he's reading. One of the things I thought was really kind of fun is, obviously, the book he's reading is about himself. That's why he breaks down and cries. Yeah. But really, if you think about it, the book is also about Cliff. All the way down to the injury that Cliff receives is the same injury that this bonco, bonco, <laughs> this bronco buster receives. Right? It's about a guy who is towards the end of his career and then hurts his hip, and now he can't do the things he does. Cliff receives a hip injury, injury by the end of this film. It's not mm. only is it the story of uh, Rick Dalton, but it's also foreshadowing of the story of Cliff. And in classic faction, Cliff is the one that had the actual violent thing happen in place of Rick Dalton. Yep. Yep. Classic stunt double. Think about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> so we're on CeeLo Drive. The, the Mansonites have shown up. <laughs> Cliff and Rick are enjoying one night of just getting completely shit-faced. Um, so here's the question about that. Was he literally just going out to walk his dog? Because I thought he said, let's go home. And he's walking away, and then he just comes back up the driveway <laughs> and into the house again. Is, is I, it just yeah, that remember. he did the, the LSD dip cig- or the acid dip cigarette, and then he just forgot what he was going out to do a walk for, and then he came back? And why is his dog food in Rick's cupboard as well? I was extremely yeah, confused. Yeah, I, I was confused about, and again, it, it's been a little while now. I was confused about locations because I knew that Cliff lives not in that nice neighborhood at all. He lives yeah. like in Van Nuys or something. Uh, and yet he is there and there's dog food and his dog is eating there too. Yeah, and it is also after they came back from Rome where they've been doing a series of these spaghetti westerns. So in theory... Mm-hmm he does have more money than he may have had at the time that he was living in the trailer. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. For whatever reason, Cliff is there. Um, <laughs> and Rick Dalton first goes down the driveway and confronts the hippies for, like, making a racket in his neighborhood, telling them to turn around. They recognize that it was him. They think, that's crazy. Like, this, this famous person I watched growing up is here maybe part of our murder spree should include him, right? Yeah. And they adopt their plan. Rick, I for whatever reason, is like in the pool with headphones on, I think, when it happens. Yeah, yeah. And so inside is Cliff, Rick's new Italian wife, and the bulldog. Yeah. And what follows is just 
all of the Tarantino bloodshed that like <laughs> has been like sitting in a pressure cooker this whole time <laughs> finally explodes in just a ridiculous I just a ridiculous fight, basically. Yeah. Uh that culminates not only in a dog in the bulldog viciously attacking someone, which is awesome, um, in Cliff getting stabbed in the leg, but also <laughs> with Rick going into a shed, <laughs> pulling out the flamethrower that we've seen from his uh Hope You Like Fried Sauerkraut movie <laughs> and flamethrowing <laughs> one of his attackers in the pool. Which, I had a blast. Which is the best thing, too, because it's a flamethrower. You're in a pool. <laughs> Go underwater. Yeah. It's great. It's great. And, like, I know people, even even word of mouth, I heard, like, right after the screening at Cannes, people were torn about that. Like, why take a real event where, like, we are familiar with the character are you kind of like making a mockery of it? Are you turning it into this weird revisionist history? And of course he did it before with Inglorious Bastards. Django is revisionist too. This is not the first time he's like altered the way history happened. I don't, those are interesting things to think about. I had so much fun with it. And I love that because of the at least vague familiarity with the Manson murders, you know, like, I knew what was going to happen. And when it doesn't happen, when it becomes such a, like, joyous revolt and the the old guys, the old guard, the people who are pa- passing away, like, passing on so the new guard can come up, they have this final moment of being like, no, we are changing history. And then the film just totally ends in a different place where Rick is now meeting with Sharon Tate and Ron Polanski. He maybe has a bright future ahead of him, like... It, it, I don't know. I, f- I found it really fun and interesting in the way that it decides to just like fuck it. I'm having one more ride, and then it just yeah. like goes for it. Yeah, no, I, I, I had the same reaction too. Like even up until that moment, um, I was not expecting them to kick in their door. Right? Yeah. Like I, I was, I was waiting for the whole thing being. He encountered these people. He knew they were weird. The murders happen. They either hear it, whether or not they hurt or capture them. It's a thing where, like, now these, like, they're a witness to a thing, and they know exactly who these people are and where they came from, and they have the information that leads to them being caught or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's st- it would still be revisionist history, um, but it would be, I didn't, I could have never dreamed that it would be like, nope, they came here instead. And boy, were they in for a surprise yeah. with what they got. Um, so yeah, so I like it. It blew my mind, and I was like, "Oh shit, this is like." Of course, of course, in Inglorious Bastards, we're happy to kill Hitler yeah. in the most gruesome, crazy way, and that felt like this specific story, right? It didn't feel like he was like, "Well, people are just going to think that we got Hitler," right? Like it. it, it it it's it felt like its own sort of like, hey, we know the way the war ended, but what if it ended with a little cherry on top, right? Yeah. This was just like insane. It was one of those things where it's like you want to slow clap. <laughs> You're just like, holy fucking shit, you did it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it is like it wasn't until like a few hours later where I was like, is that responsible to handle right. the story that way? It, it, it's kind of like after the fact. It's like in the moment, you're so cheering. And once again, Tarantino loves to do this like in Inglorious Bastards. Like we spend all this time watching them brutally kill Nazis. And then we get to that theater scene where the Nazis are watching a film where they're brutally killing the British. Yeah. And we're like, oh, that's right. I'm we're, them. We're evil monsters. <laughs> yeah. In this film, you're like, that was fucking amazing. And then you go home and you're like, that's kind of fucked up to the family of Sharon Tate, right? right. <laughs> You're like, she was like, she was murdered literally like two weeks before she was supposed to, she was due to give birth. Mm-hmm. Um, crazy, crazy. And then just, this is like, but what if it happened differently? What if this guy yeah. lived next door, the guy who can fight Bruce Lee <laughs> mm-hmm. and just ended these fools. And it kind of, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's, it's very, interesting and it is like even the real case in real life it's very strange why they targeted like they targeted this house because the person they wanted to produce their special album had lived there 
And they were like, well, what if we just went there and killed all the people that lived? Like the little, the, the, you know, Manson gave the directive, go to the house that this producer used to live in and just kill everyone there. It was so seemingly random. And the people who live in that house didn't, it, it's not even like the guy who lived in that house stole $8 million from me. So go kill the right. people who live there now. It wasn't even something like that. It was literally like, we got to kill somebody to start this helter skelter thing. Yeah. So might as well be the people who live there now. Like it, it just, it's very strange. And I know Manson it, and it's seen it. You see it in this film, but Manson visits the house looking for this guy. Um, but it, it just, yeah, it's, it's just very strange. The, the real events, why they even took place, but it's, it's also strange that he like I I wonder it it, it it's a wonder whether like anybody involved in the actual case was consulted at all mm-hmm. like just so you know I'm making this film and I mean he I, he wouldn't want to reveal what he was doing I don't know it, no. it it there's lots of questions that float around in my I mind I think so my the way I justify it because I want to justify it because I liked the movie <laughs> is um that's how that works yep um, <laughs> is that the the Charles Manson and the the murders on Silo Drive, they they are real events, but they also became pop culture events because they became a symbol of something. They were like the ushering in of the new era and the age of uncertainty and like at that at that point when like a whole generation has grown up with that as some context from like what it meant. I feel like a filmmaker is free to toy with it. Like it, it, it isn't only an individual story of a terrible thing happening. It's also like a symbol and like subverting our expectation of a symbol is kind of like a a big thing that filmmakers like to play with. So like, yeah. I would completely understand if people who were involved, you know, the family of Sharon Tate have every right to be pissed that this movie took a real tragic story and turned it into some kind of gloriously violent comeuppance, this fantasy. Um, yeah. I just, I don't know. Like y- you got to let him try anyway. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how else to say that. Cause this is the, the Florida project ending, right? This is the, like for one moment in my swan song, like, let me just imagine if things had happened differently. Yeah. Um, and, and then like, we're all talking about like the, the extra textual stuff of like, we know the real world. So why is this problematic in the moment? We are also seeing Cliff and Rick and everyone beat the shit out of like teenage girls. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like there are lots of things where again, he wants you to feel icky about the things that you are cheering for while also not being able to help, but watch with your jaw on the floor. Um, I, I don't know. I, I just appreciate a filmmaker who can still play with you that yeah. way. And I think keeping it, spoiler free and really making it be a surprise like again ken is the biggest example because literally no one had seen the movie like he just finished editing it on his way there probably um it is so rare to have that happen nowadays and i just loved not knowing anything about it until it happened like i really like that and i really wanted to preserve it for people and i'm glad it sounds like it has been preserved like you were able to watch it yeah, yeah. This weekend, and you hadn't heard about it yet. So and like I, 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 like literally, uh, David Ehrlich's comments on fighting in the war room were the only thing I listened to about this at all. Mm-hmm. And I was getting ready to turn off the episode, and he said, "I will keep it very vague because I don't want to ruin this for anybody." And I was like, "All right, I'll yep. listen." <laughs> and I'm glad I did because I. So yeah, let's let, let's talk about that part of this now. Is mm-hmm. how do you think this film would be received? If you let's even let's even go insane. Let's pretend like there that Sharon Tate is a completely fictional character, never existed, and uh, she never was murdered in real life. And it was all every single person in this film is completely made up in this story. Mm-hmm. What would you think of the film and the narrative it's telling? I have no idea. <laughs> it, it, it's impossible for me to to know. Like I. So much of the tone and the way that I feel like it masterfully plays with tension and expectations is wrapped up in what I expected of the yeah. movie. And without that expectation, I don't know if in the language of the film itself, if it tells me that 
Sharon Tate is in the crosshairs of someone. Like, like I don't know if not knowing her, I would have felt that yeah. going into it or not. Like, there is literally no character that says uh, Sharon Tate needs to die. Right. It's literally while they're in the car in front of the house, they say, Manson said go to so-and-so's house and, and kill everyone in it. That's yeah. the first time, if you do not know that Sharon Tate dies, that you would even know what was going to happen. You would think them coming up the hill is because they want to kill... Like, if you watch this film as is, like, like as it's presented to us, the audience, and you had no knowledge of the Sharon Tate murder... If they were to then go into that house and murder those people, that would be a surprise yep. because everything is pointing to the fact. Yeah, why that have we been following the wrong people? You know? Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like these people are there. This he, Cliff was there and fucked with those people. The car he was driving at the time is in that driveway. Mm-hmm. Everything about the situation says they should go into that house and kill them. We, the audience, know because of the historical events mm-hmm. that they should go into the other house and kill those people. So it's like it's it, – it's, there's so many levels in which it's twisting it that like it it's almost like – yeah, it just feels like the surprise would be the real story if this was a fake story. And the surprise for us is the fake story because it's a real story. Yep. Um, yeah, it's just – it's it is mind-bending <laughs> in a way that maybe just like, fuck, this is great. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it's playing with the truth in a way that I I can't imagine it isolated from the real world. And I'm curious how people who didn't know anything about the the Manson murders felt in yeah. this. Um, that's, yeah. that's the thing, because people, like we talked about this little bit on our walk back to the, uh, the studio, um, and there are people who are complaining that Margot Robbie was theoretically sidelined in the film. Mm-hmm. The The actress was sidelined. But what this story is doing, her character is completely irrelevant to this story, but her existence frames the narrative mm. in in a really interesting way. So she is specifically sidelined because she technically doesn't exist in this narrative, but th- her physically being present grounds this in a reality that provides prior knowledge to the audience. So it's like she is literally doing everything she needs to do to create the power of the ending of this film. Mm-hmm. And she is wholly important to the story because she is wholly irrelevant to the story. <laughs> yeah. And she's important because of the real world yeah. behind the story. And, and I think she does imbue those scenes with more than enough. Like I think she, yeah. she, she has a light about her that even if nothing else in the movie is telegraphing that she will be targeted. I'm already I am feeling the loss of Sharon Tate from that, right? Like yeah. I'm like like it, it sets it up and it gives her kind of a chance to reclaim it a little bit. And then even though the movie is then gonna twist it and make the future not happen anymore, we still got to see that. Yeah. And like there there's also an interesting thing where she is not playing Sharon Tate in the movie that she watches. Like that is just Sharon Tate in the movie. Yeah. And and so they even give the real actress a chance to be seen as she was seen then rather than just as the person who would be murdered. So yeah. I, I, don't know, I feel like it, it's a really interesting bending of truth and fiction. I can't really imagine my feelings without knowing about that. Yeah. I mean, it's this, this film is the starting point for a reverse. Uh, it's a wonderful life sort of film where like somebody is imagining what if Sharon Tate wasn't murdered and then you watch an entire biopic of this career of this woman just yeah. take off and become this star. Like all the accounts of who she was as as a person by all the people at this time were like she was just like this amazing beauty and the star and like she was gonna be like everything in Hollywood, right? And she was prematurely taken from the world. And yeah. I think that like this film ends at the place that a interesting theoretical biopic could start or like the way a documentary about her would go would be to talk about where people expected her to be and like which roles with hindsight we think would have gone to her and how the world of that would have changed if she would have been alive to play that role and like things like that like Mm. there's all this interesting stuff there and Tarantino's like nah go backwards we're gonna build to that moment you can imagine the rest of that shit and we're just gonna have this crazy awesome like 
ending that's just going to blow your brain. And and then there's an interesting meta story there because if if Rick and Cliff represent the old guard, and the old guard is very not perfect, you know, like t- today's old guard of the Me Too movement is like definitely not, you yeah. know, there, there are tons of problems. And the old Hollywood that he portrays here is very much like dominated by violent men. Women are like barely there, right? And And it's very much a like imperfect system. But then this fantasy is that the old guard makes it. The old yeah. guard saves the day and shows the youngins how it's done. And they, it, it's so weird and loopy because they keep the future from happening. And that disillusioned, disillusioned future is where like Scorsese and then Tarantino come from probably. And it's like, like I, I don't know. It, it, it's such an interesting bit of revisionism because yeah. there's like the comment on himself not wanting to go away but then the idea that, like, without that event, what would have changed about our past? I, I don't know. Yeah. And then you have, like, so so the girl, the little girl from earlier is clearly a girl from 2019, right? Mm-hmm. Like, she is this highly intelligent, precocious little girl who yep. is, like, way more adult than she should be. Yet she is the one who props up him as being good. Like, it's the person who should say, I don't care about you, this isn't your world, it's my world, but she's also the one that lifts him up as a thing that has accomplished a lot. Like, it's there, it, it's just, it's doing so much random stuff that's, like, flipping things on its head that that is, feels like it's conscious, um, but could theoretically be unconscious. I don't know. Yep. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Any last thoughts, Steven? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Well, that was our spoiler-filled review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, We are going to go take off, and we're going to record a double review of Hereditary and Midsummer. We'll see you then. Bye. That was the best acting I've ever seen in my whole life. Like you.